We're going to be in Galatians 5. We're going to continue today where we left off in Galatians 5. We're almost through with the book of Galatians. And no, I'm not sure what we're going to do next. Just in case you were wondering. Today we're going to finish the chapter, but before we start in the text of Galatians 5, we've been walking through this book for several months now, and um, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. That's kind of what we do. We go verse by verse, section by section through books of the Bible. Um, before we start in the text of Galatians chapter 5 and finish the chapter 5, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to remind you of where we are in the book. So Paul has exhorted the believers in Galatia to walk in the freedom of the gospel. That's pretty much been the theme for the, I don't know, the last several weeks, last several months as we've been going through this book. Walk in the freedom of the gospel. We can't go back to the law for righteousness, thinking that anything that we do adds to our standing before God. But at the same time, he introduced in Galatians 5 that we can't use this freedom in the gospel as an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom in the gospel doesn't mean freedom to sin. We saw that in verse 13 when he said, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but make sure you see this and don't use it for the flesh, but instead through love, serve one another. And then if you were to continue as we walk through those verses, verses 15 and 16 in Galatians 5, he said, don't bite and devour one another, but instead walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Now in verses 19 through 26, which we looked at half of last week, he shows us two lists, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So let's read that text together, verses 19 through 26. It says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we talked about that um, in depth last week. And then he gives us the second list. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the flesh, uh, by the Spirit, excuse me, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, as I said last week, we looked at the list of the works of the flesh, and we saw all of those things, and we saw that that list is not telling us how to fix ourselves. It's not telling us how to be right with God. What, we're, what we saw in that list was we were examining evidence, examining the evidence of our salvation. If your life is characterized by being divisive or envious or sexually immoral or all the things in that list, the answer is not stop it. The answer is not do better. The answer is not try harder. The answer is you have not been born again and you must trust in Jesus and be saved. Now we also talked about the fact that we often struggle with those things, but to have a life characterized, lived in those things with no conviction from the Spirit, with no uh, direction from God's Word drawing you to, to live after Him, it's evidence that the Spirit does not live 
in you. And the same is going to be true today. In the fruit of the Spirit, we're examining the Spirit's work, not what you do. We're not examining, examining how patient you are or how, how kind you are. We're examining the fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives. Just like a fruit tree naturally produces fruit because that's what it is. It is a fruit tree. Of the fruit here is produced by the Holy Spirit. It's what the Spirit does in his people. So you can't fake it. And you can't conjure it up by working harder, doing better, learning how to be kind, those kind of things. This is not a list of what you must do in order to be right with God. It is his work that we are examining, not our own. And the Spirit is not just making you good. Like these things, goodness and patience and kindness. And yes, that makes us live a good life, but that's not the intent. The Spirit's not just making us behave better because that's what we should do. He's making us more like Jesus. The list of the fruit here in this list, it describes who Jesus is. He is perfectly patient, kind, gentle, all of those things. Jesus is those things perfectly. So what the Spirit is doing in producing this fruit in us is he's conforming us to the Son, conforming us to Jesus' image. Now, this fruit that we're going to examine is produced by the Holy Spirit. It is his work in us. But we are also to nurture it, to cultivate it. And we do that not by trying harder. We do that by what Paul tells us in the latter part of this verse, verses 25 and 26, by keeping in step with the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit. And we're going to talk about how we do that. But I also want you to see before we dive in, Please don't miss the context of Galatians 5. So often we read this list and we divorce it from the context in which Paul gave it to us. The fruit of the Spirit is meant to be displayed in community. You don't grow in the fruit of the Spirit all by yourself in isolation. You don't grow in patience and kindness and gentleness without showing those things to others, specifically here in the body of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is how we serve one another through love, which is what Paul told us to do in verse 13. Instead of living by the flesh, biting and devouring one another, what he said in verse 15, the fruit of the Spirit should characterize our lives together as a body. That's why after the fruit of the Spirit list in verse 26, he said, don't provoke one another, don't envy one another, don't be conceited. So this is about how we live as the body of Christ with one another. Last week we saw that the works of the flesh are all about self. Division, rivalries, anger, strife, envy, sexual immorality. It's all about getting what I want. Everything must be my way and I'm ready to fight for it if it's not my way. The fruit of the Spirit is exactly opposite. It focuses on others' well-being. So love is the opposite of enmity. Peace is the opposite of strife and division. Patience is the opposite of fits of anger and rivalry. Self-control is the opposite of drunkenness and sexual immorality. So understand Living a spirit-filled life is not what most people think it is. 
Living a spirit-filled life is not high emotional peaks all the time. It's not powerful displays of miraculous things all the time. The evidence of a spirit-filled life is how you treat people. One of, uh, one of the men that was a mentor in my life used to say, the, there's a whole denomination that says the evidence of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. He said, the evidence of the Spirit is not speaking in tongues, it's how you control your tongue at Walmart. So understand this, we're talking about how we live in community with one another. And that's how the Spirit produces this fruit. So let's look at it. I'm going to spend the majority of my time in point one. So don't be, don't be scared if we're 20 minutes in point one. I still got two more to go. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, of course, love comes first, right? Paul told us to serve one another through love, verse 13. He told us love fulfills the law, verse 14. Love really embodies all of the spiritual fruit. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't seek its own way, it's not rude. Love is an attribute of God. 1 John tells us that God is love. So when God, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in your heart by, sal by the gospel through salvation, when he dwells in our hearts, love is who he is within us. And that's why love is an evidence of our salvation because love is who God is. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Make sure that you don't get my words twisted and get the message of these verses twisted. It is not because, it's not because you're not loving good enough that it's an evidence of salvation. If I could just love better, then yeah, okay, finally God would be, no, that's not the evidence. It's what God is doing in you. That is the evidence. It's not about how hard you try, how good you're doing, or how much you're failing. Is God producing love in you. That's the evidence. God produces the fruit of love in us. Love for God and love for what God loves, his people. Now the spirit produces love in us, but you know as well as I do, as we walk in this life, we still battle against the flesh. So we need to know how do we keep in step with the spirit, which is what Paul told us to do, the only command in this section, the last two verses, how do we keep in step with the Spirit and cultivate the fruit of love in our lives? We do so not by trying harder, not by being better, but by focusing on God's great love for us in the gospel. Just a few verses after this in 1 John chapter 4, he says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So you know as well as I do, there are people that are hard to love. And you are one of them. And I'm one of them. You are an enemy of God, un undeserving of anything except condemnation and wrath. Yet God loved you in the state that you were in. When you couldn't give him anything, when you couldn't do anything for him, when you were unworthy to be loved, he loved you. He loved you and sent his son to die for you. 
And God loves your brother and your sister in Christ that is seated all around you. He loves your brother and sister in Christ on the other side of the world as well. And he sent his son for them. So if God loved you with this love and he loves the person sitting next to you, if they're a believer with this love, how can we withhold our love from one, from one another? It's like saying, you know, God, I know that you've accepted that person through the death of Jesus Christ and it's enough to pay for their sin, but it's not enough for me. They have to do something else for me to love them rightly. Jesus said, this is the command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. We keep in step with the Spirit when we remember that though we deserve nothing, Jesus loved us with a perfect love. The second fruit is joy. God is a God of joy. He delights perfectly in himself. He delights perfectly in his son. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And our joy is found in the same place where God's joy is found, in him and in what he has done for us. Listen, joy is not just being giddy and bubbly and happy all the time. There are times of trial in this life, of sorrow in this life, of pain in this life. But believers are called to rejoice in all circumstances in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. James tells us to count it all joy when we go through various trials. And we know from scripture that joy can be present in us even when it's mixed with other things like sorrow and pain and hurt. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul is giving a list of all of his afflictions. And he says, we are sorrowful, but always rejoicing. And there's a reason why we can have joy in the midst of whatever's happening in our life. Joy together as a body of Christ. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus tells this one verse parable. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. You see, notice, joyful, though he's selling everything that he has. The treasure that he found was worth more to him than all of his possessions, all of his stuff, anything else in his life. With joy, he got rid of it all so he could purchase this field. Listen, joy is found in Christ, who is our treasure, in being received into the kingdom of God. That's what we're created for, relationship with God. It's what we're designed for. Our hearts will yearn for eternity until we find it in him. And that joy is perfect no matter what happens in this life. Even when we are in the grip of the hardest suffering, even through the pain of this life, we know I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm adopted, God is working for my good, one day this will all be made right and I will be perfect in his sight, accepted. I'm already perfect in his sight, but will practically be made perfect without sin because I'm an heir to the kingdom of God. That's where our joy comes from. The spirit produces joy in us for the same things that God himself takes joy in. His name, his glory, his people. But the joy of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit that is joy we indeed have to keep in step with the Spirit and cultivate, nourish this joy. 
And it's not just by thinking happy thoughts. It's by trusting in the truth and the promises of God's word. At the end of Romans, in Romans 15, 13, Paul says this, may, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Look at it, in believing. We're filled with joy and peace in believing, in feasting on God's word and trusting in God's word. Even if it contradicts what I see with my own eyes, what I experience in my own life, God's word is true and I will believe it, I will trust it. Jesus said in John 15, 11, he said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy would be full. Joy is nurtured by trusting in the truth of God's word, the promises of God, rejoicing that we are accepted in the gospel in Christ and doing so together as a body. Are y'all with me? Are you with me louder? Okay. The next one is peace. I'm going to try to go through these as quick as I can, but I felt like I needed to say something about each one. Peace. God is called the God of peace all through the New Testament. James says that Jesus himself is our peace. Peace with God in the gospel really for us is easy to understand. We've been talking about it for a long time. Peace in the gospel means that, you know, we're no longer at war with God. We're no longer enemies of God through our sin. We've been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. And having peace with God gives us peace in our hearts as well because we're trusting in the promise. We know that it's done, it's finished, there's nothing else that needs to be done. But peace with God also gives us peace with one another. Make sure you don't, you don't forget to read this in the context of Galatians 5. Peace is the opposite of biting and devouring one another in verse 15. Peace is the opposite of those works of the flesh, division and strife and enmity and anger and rivalries. Peace with one another, I believe, is primarily in view here. And peace with one another is part of what, God, what Paul calls walking worthy of our calling in the gospel. In Ephesians 4, it says, I therefore, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Look, with all humility and gentleness, a fruit of the Spirit, with patience, a fruit of the Spirit, bearing with one another in love, a fruit of the Spirit, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walking worthy is keeping in step with what the Spirit is doing in our life. If God gave us peace with himself and the God of peace lives in us, how can we not have peace with one another? How can we not be convicted when we don't? The next fruit of the Spirit is patience. Yeah, it's your favorite one, ain't it? Patience is emotional calm, I guess. Emotional calm without irritation. Capacity to accept and to tolerate trouble and suffering. The patient person has a slow fuse. They're steadfast, persistent, willing to suffer aggravation or even persecution. We are to be patient in hard circumstances, means to endure hard circumstances. I don't think, I mean, that's tough sometimes when we're going through that, but we understand that. And in, in fact, I think it might be a little easier because we know we can't control any of the circumstances uh, of our lives, but it's a whole lot harder to be patient with somebody else, isn't it? With another person. Okay, maybe it's just me, I don't know. 
Being patient with one another was also in Ephesians 4. It's part of what Paul calls walking worthy of our calling. Now that's easy to say, but how do we cultivate that? How do we keep in step with the Spirit who is producing patience? We have to focus ourselves on God's patience to us. I find the power to forgive and bear with others when I remember how God has forgiven and borne with me. When we view ourselves as entitled or deserving of what we've been given, we may not ever say it, but we feel it in our heart. We lose the heart of the gospel and we lose patience as well. And make sure that you understand, you're aware of the way that God grows patience in us. He grows patience in us by testing it and stretching it beyond its capacity. It's like a rubber band. When you stretch it beyond, the path, beyond its capacity without breaking it, you stretch it and it's beyond its capacity. When you let go, it's a little bit bigger than it was. And then you stretch it again past, past its capacity and when you let go, it's a little bit bigger than it was. That's how God grows our patience. Unless you think that I'm up here telling you as a master of the fruit of the Spirit how I have mastered all the fruits of the Spirit, uh, it's just not so. Yesterday, yesterday, I've been studying this text all week. Yesterday, I went to pick up a little thing of sod that Sean and Trish Gerber gave me. And they, they moved a while back. And for some reason, I just didn't know where they lived. And they live right down the road from me. But when I click their name in the Shepherd app, and when I click their, their uh, it's an app we use, you know, to kind of pastoral care for people. When I click the button, my map sent me halfway to Derby. So I go all the way to Derby and I pull up in some dude's driveway and that ain't their house. So I clicked it again and it sent me on the other side of Mulvane, way out in the country. And I pulled up in this guy's driveway and he's like, well, that's not their house either. And so finally, I just text Dana, Dana, send me their address. And so I got the right address. We're on the way and Sophie's with me. And I'm like, I can't believe it is, it's seven o'clock on Saturday night and I've got to get home to work on this sermon. I'm going to be preaching tomorrow and I don't have time for this. And I'm driving all over Kansas. And Sophie said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, patience. <laughs> no, God grows our patience when it's tested. Listen, when our patience is tested, when it's tested beyond its limit and we feel the failure of us, of our hearts to have that patience, God is revealing the places in our hearts where we still have pride, where we still feel entitled, where we're still self-centered. When our patience is tested, God is shining a light in the dark places of our hearts that he still wants to change. So when you lose your patience, see it for what it is. It is God showing you the place where you're not finding your fulfillment in him. It's the spirit working in you. And you need, I need to keep in step with the spirit. See that place for what it is, repent of it, trust in the gospel and walk ahead. The next is kindness and goodness. Kindness and goodness, these two, I'm going to take them together because they both are translated by one Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's, it's a tender concern for one another, a gracious heart that seeks one another's good. Now, God's kindness and goodness toward us, it, it should be pretty apparent. I shouldn't have to go into much depth about how God has been good to you. God has been kind to you, especially through the gospel, most primarily through the gospel. But, but how do we cultivate this fruit? 
We do it the same way, by remembering God's kindness to us, focusing on the kindness and the goodness that we've received in the gospel of grace. In Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We must consistently and constantly focus ourselves on the gospel and remember that God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing but condemnation and wrath. But in Jesus, he didn't give us what we deserved. He gave us mercy. He gave us his kindness. He gave us his goodness. And now, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you do, there is nothing in God for you except his kindness and his goodness because you are in Jesus Christ and your sin is cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered. God has given us his kindness and his goodness. How can we withhold it from one another? The next word is faithfulness. Faithfulness is to be true, to be reliable. One who is true to their word. God, of course, is faithful. Hebrews 6 says it's impossible for God to lie. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his nature. I mean, I'm sure we can all agree that God is faithful. But sometimes we see God's faithfulness as just a philosophical truth or a theological concept that we know is true, but it's out there in the abstract somewhere. Sometimes when we're struggling, when we're failing, when when we're in trial, when we're hurting, we forget God is faithful to you. God is faithful to me. He's faithful to you personally. He knows you by name. He's faithful to you personally in your life, in your walk, in your trials, in your circumstances. Even when you fail and you sin as a believer, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's what it says in 1 John 1, 9. And when we focus our hearts and our minds on God's faithfulness in the gospel to us, we can be faithful to one another. We can be faithful to God who expects us to be faithful with what he's given us. God is faithful and we reflect his image when we are faithful to him and faithful to one another. The next word is gentleness or some of your translations may say meekness. In 1 Timothy it says a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. The gentle are those who think more of others than themselves. They put the concern of others above their own. They don't bite and devour one another, as it said in verse 15. In Proverbs, it says, a gentle answer will turn away wrath. We are to be humble in heart and gentle with one another because our God has been gentle and tender with us. In one of Many people's favorite chapters in the Bible, Isaiah 40, it says this, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Listen, in Christ, we are loved with a kind and compassionate understanding and gentle love. Jesus does not break the bruised reed. He doesn't extinguish the smoldering wick. He is gentle and lowly of heart. He says so, and you will find rest for your soul, Matthew 11. 
Listen, you may not understand fully God's gentleness right now. You may not be able to see it in the trials that you're experiencing or the circumstances of your life, but it is true. God is gentle and kind and tender with you. If you have been born again, you are one of his sheep. He is a good shepherd. You may not treasure it right now as you face all the things of this life, but you will treasure God's gentleness one day when you're lying in a hospital bed moments away from passing out of this life. Oh, you'll find out he is a loving shepherd. He is a loving shepherd of his sheep and he will come and gather his little lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom. So how do we keep in step with the spirit and cultivate gentleness? I stood on this one for a long time, looked all through different passages of scriptures. It's not easy to be gentle, especially when people slander you or oppose you. Our flesh wars against gentleness. It's not manly to be gentle. But gentleness to one another is who Jesus is. Gentleness to one another can only come from the Spirit of God as we remember what we have been given, the gentle kindness and tenderness that we have been shown. It can only come from the Spirit as we trust God rather than battling to protect ourselves. Gentleness is who God is. It's who Christ is. And it's who the Spirit of God is within us. The last word is self-control. Jesus is the embodiment of self-control. He exhibited self-control in his temptations. He exhibited it through the hardships of living among sinners. He exhibited it in the garden when he prayed, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. In scripture, self-control is not just the willpower to not eat cupcakes. It's not just the discipline and the control of self to train your body for competition or to be healthy or something like that. Self-control is not being ruled by anything other than our new nature in Christ and the word of God. Self-control is not self-mastery. It's living faithfully under the lordship of Jesus Christ for his glory and empowered by his spirit. That's what self-control is. If you try to control yourself and live for God in your own strength, you're either going to end up in despair because of your inability to do so, or you're going to end up a Pharisee dismissing your sin and trusting in your good works. So that's Paul's list, the fruit of the spirit. None of us, none of us are perfect in any of these fruit of the Spirit yet. But if you're a believer in Christ, they are growing. Like any fruit, it takes time to grow, but it is God himself who is making these fruit grow. It is the Spirit who produces. It is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you. The Spirit produces these in every believer. So we examine this fruit to see if the Spirit is in us. And each of the fruits of the Spirit, they find their root. I hope you saw it as we walk through it. They find their root, its foundation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the gospel is the center of our life, when we know who we are in the gospel, when we walk in who we are in the gospel, who Christ has made us, and He is our treasure, 
That is when we're keeping in step with the Spirit who produces these things. So very quickly, let's look at the root of the gospel in these things. He says, against such things, the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul says there's no law against such things. There's no law that can find fault in these things, the fruit of the Spirit. There's no law that can find fault in what the Spirit is producing in your life. Those who walk in the Spirit, following the the leading of the Spirit, are freed from the law, he told us in Galatians. But we also fulfill the law from a new heart because we love God and we're loving one another, loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's Paul's whole argument in Galatians, Galatians. And then Paul returns to the root of all things. It's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And I want you to make sure you see this. Paul says this as a statement of fact. You see it? This is not a command. It's not an exhortation. He's not saying, come on, guys, let's crucify that flesh. Let's crucify those passions. No, he's not saying that at all. Those who belong to Christ have done this. It's a reality. And when did that take place? Well, the language he uses points us right back to Galatians 2.20. When Paul himself said, I have been crucified with Christ. The flesh with its passions and desires was crucified when we were converted, when we were born again. We were united with Christ in his death and the spirit came to dwell in us. Now, when he says the passions and desires of the flesh have been crucified, it doesn't mean we no longer battle with these things. Doesn't mean we no longer feel the tug of the flesh anymore. It means that the flesh and its desires, what it desires, can no longer rule over you. That's his whole point in listing the works of the flesh and saying those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They can no longer rule over you. We've received a new heart that's no longer enslaved to bow to the will of our sinful nature anymore. Our hearts now desire to live for Christ because the Spirit has changed us. The Spirit has overthrown our old master of self and he wars against the flesh daily. The Spirit does. So while we feel the tug of the flesh, the flesh cannot have dominion over us anymore. When the flesh comes and, and sometimes we do yield ourselves to the flesh, we still do. The Spirit is right there to bring conviction and to lead us to repentance and to go to war against the flesh, to discipline us if we need be, to turn us back so that we walk according to the will of our new master. We are not left unchecked at the mercy of our passions and our desires anymore. The Spirit is there and He makes war against those things and He will not let His children go. John Brown said it this way, true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross and they're determined to keep it there till it expires. We're not left alone to be taken captive by the passions and the desires of the flesh anymore. They cannot take control again. Why? Because we now belong to Jesus. Do you see it there? Every believer, every single one belongs to Jesus Christ. If you're united to him in salvation, he is Lord over your life. He rules and reigns in your heart. You are his. 
Now we use language like we need, you need to make him Lord of your life. And I, I understand what you mean by that when you say that. You mean we need to submit ourselves to him. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But understand, you can't make him Lord. He is Lord. And as a believer, if you walk in the flesh, if you yield to the flesh, which we often do, he will turn you back. In John 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and they will not follow a stranger and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Our shepherd doesn't run away when the wolves come. The flesh is a defeated enemy who is, yes, raging and he is roaring, but he is fixed to the cross and he is bleeding out. And one day he will be removed. So what are we to do? I, I was going to say real quickly, but I, I'm probably lying. What are we to do? This is what we do, the pursuit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul just stated a fact. Those who belong to Christ, crucify the flesh. That's a reality. Now he gives us the command. If we live by the Spirit, this is not a higher plane of Christianity. It's not a second tier Christian like, well, now I've elevated where I'm, I'm living by the Spirit. Now, no, he's saying, if you've been given life, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, if eternal life has been given to you by the Spirit as the Spirit applies the gospel to your life, if you've received life by the Spirit, made new by the Spirit, Keep in step with what he's doing in your life. That is the command. That's all we're called to do in this list. He's not saying, you know, you better be more loving. We all need to be more loving. You better be more patient. We all need to be more patient. The command is not do better, be better, do more, be more. The command is keep in step with what the Spirit is doing in your heart. This is what we're called to do. You can't produce love. You can't produce joy, peace, patience. He produces the fruit. We simply yield to him. We depend upon him. We turn our hearts to walk in what he is doing. If you've been given life by the spirit, which defines every saved person, just keep in step with what he's doing. Keep in step literally means walk in a line or walk in a row in formation. It's often used for military formation. So I think Richard Phillips's comments here give us some clarity on the issue. He says, soldiers not only march in formation, but they run in formation. When they do, there's only one thing they have to worry about, which is keeping in step. They don't need to worry about where they're going or how they'll get there. They don't need to guess how much farther they have to go. Their commanding officer will give them their orders as necessary. The only thing soldiers need to know how to do is step in time. That's what we're called to do. Keep in step. In each moment, depend on the Spirit of God. Yield yourself to the Spirit of God. Follow after the one who is transforming your heart. How do we do that? We have to recognize just our total dependence upon him at all times. We have to recognize our need to continually feed on his word and be filled with his word and have our minds renewed with his word. We need to keep in step with him when we, when we remember that we need communion with him in prayer. We need the power that comes from him as we commune with him in prayer. We keep in step with him when we understand that we must have our spirits renewed by one another as we worship and we fellowship together as the body of Christ. 
When we walk in step with the Spirit, we are completely dependent upon Him, finding our identity in the gospel alone and filling our minds with His Word and His power around His people. You know, our problem is that most of the time we just don't really think we need Him. When things are going good, there's no huge trial, there's no huge suffering going on, life is just basically good, we're too busy to seek Him in His Word. We're too busy to pour our hearts out to him in prayer. And let's face it, it's just too taxing for us to stretch ourselves out there and invest ourselves with the body of Christ, which God loves so dearly as his bride. You know, when someone stretches my patience, it's just easier for me to check out. It's too hard. I don't have to deal with this. To keep in step with the Spirit we must be desperately dependent upon him at every moment of every day in the good times and the bad times when things are going good, when someone's testing my patience, when I'm testing someone else's patience. We need his word daily. We need prayer daily. We need worship and fellowship with the body of Christ because when we depend upon him and fill our minds with his word and center all that we are on who God is and what he has done for us and who we are in Christ, that's how we nurture the fruit of the Spirit. That's how we nurture what God is doing in us when we remember His promises, when we remember His Word, when we trust His Word over what I see with my own eyes and the experiences that I'm having in my life. We remember His Word. That's how we keep in step. And when we keep in step with the Spirit, we're dependent solely on Him, desperately dependent on Him for everything you can't be conceited. Conceited means to be proud when you don't have a reason to be proud. You can't be conceited when you've been given everything as a gift. When you know that you're dependent upon him for your love and your joy and how you live and the grace that you've been given, you can't withhold that from one another when you received it yourself as a free gift. Ultimately, to not... Keep in step with the Spirit means that we're not reflecting to others what we have received by the grace of God. Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. Division, enmity, strife, dissensions, sexual immorality, all the things that we saw. Walk in the Spirit and you will not satisfy the, the desires of the flesh. Keeping in step with the Spirit, it's going to show in your lives. Because it's only then, only when we are keeping in step with the Spirit that we can serve one another in love, as Paul told us to do in verse 13. It's only then that we won't bite and devour one another, what he said in verse 15. The evidence of the power of the Spirit in your life is not displayed by miraculous wonders or heights of emotional ecstasy. It is in how you treat one another. Because that's what it looks like to be more like Christ. The goal of discipleship, the goal of your life, the Christian life, is to be more and more like Christ. Who was Christ? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's who Christ is, and that's who the Spirit is making you by producing this fruit. Examine the evidence this morning. Is the Spirit living in you? Or is your life characterized by self and the list of the works of the flesh? 
as we end this chapter, please remember, do better is not the answer. Do better is not what Paul is telling the Galatians. He's telling them to be dependent upon Christ, to keep in step with what the Spirit is doing in your heart. Trust in Him and let's walk forward. Let's pray. God, we do love you. We thank you for your word. Father, there's so much more that I could have said, but God, I just pray that you would use this text and that you would apply it to our hearts. I pray that you would show us where all of us, from the pulpit all the way to the back door, are failing in nurturing what the Spirit is doing in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to be dependent upon you, desperately dependent, knowing that we need your word. We need to commune with you in prayer. We need each other as the body of Christ, God, in order to fulfill the life that you have given us, to walk worthy of the calling that you have given us, in order to keep in step with the Spirit, God. We pray that you would help us see the need for us to just saturate ourselves with who you are. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't trusted in you, whose life is characterized by the works of the flesh, God, I pray that they would hear above all, the answer is not stop it. The answer is not do better. The answer is turn to Christ. Turn to the gospel and be saved. God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that they would trust in you, that you sent your son to die for their sin and that you rose from the grave, Jesus, in power and glory for their justification. God, I pray that you would give us all hearts that trust and depend on you. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. Will you stand with me?